Well, good morning. Happy Thanksgiving. You guys awake with me? Anybody okay? Give me a little something. If you're here, fantastic. My name is Matt. I get the privilege of leading our time studying the Bible together. Join me in doing this. Uh, let's say hi to everybody watching online. Can you just make some noise and welcome them? Yes. If if you're traveling with family or whatever, and you took the time to join us online, we love you, we see you, and we're glad you're here. So together we are in week 47 of our Quest 52 study. There's been one chapter for each week of the year. We are almost all the way through this thing. Today we're taking on a huge question together, which is how do I endure pain? And I want you to know from the jump that I'm well aware that this is a holiday weekend and we are entering a season when pain tends to come knocking. Maybe it's an empty seat at the holiday table. Maybe it's grief from somebody that's no longer with you. Maybe it's disappointment through something that happened this year. Maybe it's just the sense of loneliness. No matter what it is, we know that this season is a season when pain tends to come knocking. And what we're going to do today is watch our Savior, Jesus Christ, endure great pain. And we're going to learn from him and from the truth of God's word how we endure pain when it comes knocking in our lives. I would love for you, if you brought a Bible or if you have a phone, to just take a minute with me and go to Mark chapter 15, okay? So you got a Bible in your hands, that's great. If you're uh, new or you just got a Bible on your phone, it's in there. And it's just more fun when you follow along with me in your scriptures there. I'll tell you this, if you are a highlighter, a note taker, or an underliner, you are my people, okay? And, and if you see something or hear something you want to take home today, you can take a picture of it on the screen. That is an acceptable form of note taking in Jesus' name. So if anything good is going to happen today, it is going to be by God's power moving in us through his word. So I'm going to pray before we study the Bible together, and then we're going to get after it, okay? So would you join me in prayer? God and Father, I just stop and declare that you are our hope. I ask that you would hide me completely behind the love and power of Jesus Christ. Father, for those of us in the room today who are enduring pain, I pray that you would meet with us personally. Holy Spirit, by the power of your word, would you come and bring healing? In Jesus' name, amen. If it were just you and me and a few others and we were studying this passage in Mark 15 around a coffee shop table and there were laptops open or notebooks and Bibles open in front of us, I would have you turn to Mark chapter 15. But before you got into that text, I would have you write three scripture references at the top of your note sheet or your Bible maybe. Before getting into Mark 15, I would say, hey, at the top of your page, your sheet, your laptop, whatever it is for you, I want you to write down Colossians 1, 2 Kings 19, and Revelation 19, okay? So those are different books of the Bible. The number after them is the chapter in those books of the Bible. And I would say, hey, in just a minute, in Mark 15, we're going to watch Jesus be abused. We're going to watch him slandered. We're going to watch him taken advantage of. We're going to watch him harassed 
spit on, and beaten. And as we do, I would say, do not forget Colossians 1. Do not forget in Colossians 1, we are reminded that Jesus spoke creation into existence and in him exists the fullness of the power of God. So everything we see happen to Jesus in Mark 15, he is going to allow to happen. I would say, don't forget in 2 Kings 19, we will watch one angel of God wipe out an Assyrian army of 185,000 soldiers. Do not forget that Jesus Christ is the commander of angel armies, and yet we will watch him spit on and beaten by just a couple of Roman soldiers. I would say, do not forget Revelation 19. Do not forget that our Savior will return with fire in his eyes and a sword in tow to judge the nations. And do not forget here in Mark 15, he allows himself to be subject to mockery, abuse, physical torture. And he chose to never let his divine status excuse him from the pain associated with being clothed in humanity. And he did this for you and for me. With that in mind, I would say let's go to Mark 15. Verse 1, here we go. It says, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans so they bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. What's happening here? Jesus has been arrested after the Last Supper with his disciples. He has spent the night in custody of the Jewish authority. They have now taken him to Pilate. Now, why would they bind his hands and tie him up to deliver him to Pilate? He went to Jerusalem willingly. His whole movement never hurt a soul, and Jesus never carried a sword. Well, here's your answer. They want to embarrass him. They want to assert their power and authority over the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They march him over to Pilate, who is a Roman governor, but not a very good Roman governor. He's had a hard time managing this area of Judea that's been assigned to him. There's been several uprisings from the Jewish culture, and it reflects poorly upon him. So this Jewish crowd that is taking Jesus to Pilate has political leverage over Pilate, and that's why in just a few verses we will watch that them boldly pilot into pronouncing Jesus' death sentence, which is something they could not do for themselves. Verse 2, Jesus is before Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things, so Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer See how many things they are accusing you of? They want Jesus to be eliminated as quickly as possible. So essentially, they, they charge him with treason. They charge him with trying to overthrow the Roman government. They charge him with not paying taxes. All of these accusations, which are false down to their very essence. Jesus was without sin. Every accusation they throw at him is false. And look at these words. But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Highlight it, circle it, underline it. We will be coming back to that in a moment. Verse 6, now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner 
whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. He's a real criminal and he's actually guilty. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what they usually did. So it's Passover, there's this tradition, Pilate would set free a prisoner. And so Pilate addresses the crowd and he says, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests and had handed Jesus over to him. Pilate actually sees the injustice happening to Jesus this moment. He tries to release Jesus. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Verse 12, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked him, crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him, crucify him. We want him eliminated. And what this crowd does is plays to their advantage the fact that Pilate is in thin ice with the Roman government. Now, Pilate wants to look competent. He wants to look strong. And if they stir up this uprising yet again in his little area of jurisdiction, it reflects poorly upon him. So the Jewish leaders yell, crucify him. We need him dead. He's a threat to Rome. He's a threat to the temple. And he needs to be killed. They stir people in hopes that if they put enough pressure on Pilate, he'll pronounce Jesus' death sentence. And in verse 15, it worked. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now, what you'll see here momentarily in Mark 15, 1 through 15, Jesus endures great pain both physically and emotionally. Physically, the great pain is pronounced there in verse 15, those quick words. He had Jesus flogged. It's just four words in our text. But everybody who heard this in this time period would have known what that meant. Most of us would literally be sick to our stomachs if we watched what happened to Jesus. Jesus' execution did not begin when the nails went through his wrists on a cross. His execution began with this flogging. His arms would have been tied around a long pole so the skin on his back was stretched tight. And then somebody with this cord, this whip of cords braided together with different strings coming off and pieces of glass and clay woven into them would be smashed into Jesus' back, his abdomen ripping around to his stomach towards all that tissue is being torn apart. It would have looked like hamburger when they were finished. This is why Jesus breathed his last before the criminals on the crosses to his left and his right. Many people did not even survive this flogging. What does this mean for us? It means Jesus can identify with our physical pain. This season, if you're dealing with physical pain, maybe it's migraines, maybe it's back pain or some issue that won't go away, Jesus knows how you feel. 
If an agonizing season of chemo is stripping away the life from you or a loved one, Jesus knows how you feel. If you're waiting on a diagnosis and everything is telling you it's not looking good, Jesus could look you in the eyes and say, I know how you feel. Additionally, what I hope to point out to you here is that Jesus did not just endure great physical pain. Through this chapter, he endured much emotional pain as well. Jesus knows the pain of being falsely accused. Did you see verse 3? It says, they accused him of many things. That means if you've ever had somebody say something false about your character to people who matter and it cost you something, Jesus could say, I've been there too. I have a dear friend who served in the Navy for 25 years. This man is one of the most dutiful, intelligent, respectful people I've ever met in my entire life. Year 10 of his 25-year career, he just had a commanding officer appointed to his unit that hated him. Just didn't like him. And year 10 also happened to be when my friend was up for what would be or could have been the greatest promotion of his career. When this commanding officer filled out an evaluation, he put several claims in that evaluation that were simply false about my friend. He didn't get the promotion, but I want you to think of this for a minute. Not only did he not get that promotion, but for the next 15 years of his life, those false remarks affected his rank, his earnings, and what he was able to provide for his wife and children for the next 15 years. I hate that that happened to him, but I love that Jesus could walk up to him with compassion and say, hey, I've been there too. Jesus knows the pain of loneliness. Who's missing in this passage? Where are James and John who said, I will be there at your left or at your right. We don't care which one is which, Jesus. We'll be there with you. Where is Thomas who said, if you're going to Jerusalem to die, then I'm going with you. Where is Peter who just hours ago said, Lord, if all of them go running, you will find me with you till the end. Jesus gets loneliness. If you've ever given your best to some people who walked out on you, Jesus has been there too. If you simply feel lonely this holiday season, Jesus has been there too. Jesus knows the pain of injustice. If we were to go over to John's gospel, okay, so we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all write about the life and happenings of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we'll find details in one that aren't mentioned in another. And that's by design. John specifically wanted to show things that weren't shown by the other gospel writers. And in his account, several different times, actually three specific times in this trial, Pilate says, I find no basis for charge against him. Can you imagine that for a minute? Can you imagine you got a letter from the IRS and they said, hey, we want to bring you in for an audit. We just want to look over things. We saw some irregularities in your taxes. And you go in and you do this big audit with the IRS. And they're like, you know what? We can't really find anything. But here's what we'll do. We'll take you to court. 
And while you're trying to get your head around that, and you're saying, hey, wait a second, I'm fine, aren't we? And they're like, no, just see us in court. And then you go to court, and they look over everything with the judge. And the judge says, you know what? I don't really find a basis to charge you. And you're like, oh, thank goodness. And the judge says, tell you what we'll do. We're going to send you to prison for three years, and we'll find you $150,000. And you would say, wait a second. I didn't do anything. Jesus knows the pain of injustice. This means in your workplace, if you were doing your best and you were working with integrity, but some political game left you on the outs, Jesus could look at you and say, I've been there too. If you were ever discriminated against and they got away with it, Jesus could say, I've been there too. You can find just about every single type of emotional pain in Mark 15, verses 1 through 15. If you've ever been teamed up on by people around you, if you've had to say goodbye to loved ones too soon, if you've watched good things happen to bad people while you've remained righteous, Jesus gets that too. Mark 15 screams, your Savior has been there too. Now let me back out of this for a moment and tell you what's happening in the room right now. Some of us, are thinking of pain we've experienced in the past, pain we're experiencing right now, and we are beginning to see Jesus in that pain. Some of us are like, golly, Matt, I thought this was a baby Jesus Sunday. Like, we just did Thanksgiving. I survived that with my family, and here we are. I thought we were going to get some warm fuzzies, and trust me, that's coming, all right? The, the Christmas story is coming, and we are looking forward to that. But I tell you that to tell you, no matter where you sit in the room right now, every single one of us can appreciate the fact that we have a Savior who has been there too. I like that my Savior has some dirt under his fingernails. I like when I go through something, I can look to Jesus and see that he went through something too. I like in 1 John, he says, God demonstrated his love among us, which meant he wasn't content to love us from a distance. He sent his son into earth, into humanity with the pain and the feelings and the grime that we experience too. We have a savior who has been there. I like that about my savior. So now to our million dollar question, how do we learn from Jesus how to endure pain? I want you to notice in his pain, Jesus remained silent. If you go to commentaries, and a commentary is a book by a Bible scholar who tells you about the background, the different happenings, and what was going on in the culture and the language so you can deeper, more deeply understand what was going on in the scriptures. Almost every single commentary I looked at mentions the fact that Jesus is remarkably silent through this whole trial. The Christian hero John Calvin said it like this, Jesus remains silent before Pilate so that ever after he may speak for us. 
I want you to know there is a type of silence in suffering that is Christ-like. Specifically, when you are being accused and abused by people around you. Maybe it's a family drama. Maybe it's a workplace politics thing. There is a type of godly silence. I'm not talking about bottling it up and not letting God have it. Because, oh, you bring it to God. And trust me when I say he can handle more than you think. I'm not talking about isolating yourself and backing away from community. No, you take it to your life group. That's why we have those. But there is a silence in suffering that is Christ-like. When I refuse to sink down to the level of those who are abusing me and accusing me, I know that God will vindicate me. That's Christ-like. If you are going through that right now, if you are living this, you're like, Matt, did somebody send you my mail this week? Because I am there. My advice to you and my challenge to you would be to go to 1 Peter chapter 2. You should live in that chapter. I will tell you, it is one of the most difficult and scandalous passages in the Bible. But if you are going through pain that is caused by other people, it could set you free. In 1 Peter, the... Apostle Peter, after the death and resurrection of Christ, writes these words, to this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, why did he do this? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. When I refuse to argue with those who abuse and accuse me, I am inviting God to fight for me. When you refuse to argue with those who abuse and accuse you, you are inviting God to fight for you. And my friends, he's never lost a battle. Where anyone can get into the mix and feel that pain, be slandered or talked about and want to get in there. I'm going to roll up my sleeves. I'm going to fight for my reputation. I'm going to show everybody that they're actually the problem. And if you just look at the facts and see them and where I was, that I'm not them and they're doing something. I'm not the one doing something. Yeah, I get that. That's the temptation in these moments. But anyone can do that. When we lean into Christ and we say, you know what? I'm not even going there because my God will fight for me. We are shining our light and displaying our faith to the world around us. Is it easy? Absolutely not. Will it change everything? Well, on the promise of God's word, it will. When I watch Jesus in these moments, I also see that he stayed tethered to the truth. Jesus stayed tethered to the truth. Over in John's account of this trial, there's this interaction between Jesus and Pilate. And if you read the story, you would know how confident Jesus is and how weak Pilate looks in this interchange. And Pilate's listening to these accusations. He's looking at Jesus and he's trying to make sense of everything. And he's saying, so what's going on? And they're saying that 
you're trying to overthrow Caesar and I don't even see a kingdom. You don't look like a king to me. And Jesus says, listen, I have a kingdom. It's not of this world. And if I did, my friends and my soldiers would come fight you right now. But what I'm doing is bigger than what you're doing, Pilate. Trust me on that. And in verse 18 or verse 37 in chapter 18 of John, Pilate responds. He says, you are a king then. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to what? Testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. And in a moment of stone cold sobriety, what is truth? Retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there. The man appointed judge finds himself seeking truth at the feet of Jesus. But there's something powerful if you go and you read this at home later today. You will see through the emotional abuse, the physical abuse, the ridicule, Right on down to when Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, he never let go of three core truths. He never let go of who God was. He never let go of who God said he was. And he never let go of the truth of what God had called him to do. I tell you this to remind you, in times of great pain, we must fight for the truth. I tell you this because in 20 some odd years of pastoral ministry, I've watched so many people abandon the truth and build poor theology on the platform of their pain. A theology just means God thought. It's how you think about God and what's true about God. And I've watched so much poor theology be built on the platform of pain. God didn't answer that prayer turns into God doesn't answer prayers. God didn't show up for me turns into God's not present in this world. God didn't fix my marriage turns into marriage is a failed institution. The church hurt me turns into churches can't be trusted. And I tell you this to tell you in times of great pain, we must fight for the truth. And I get this because pain is pain and pain hurts and pain can quickly erode your thinking. And when you're in great pain, you have to cling to the truth. And if you can't do it yourself, get around some people who will hold you to the truth when you can't because there is an enemy who wants to destroy us and he knows the truth will set you free. My friends, If you're in pain right now, can I just be the voice that reminds you? God is real. He is good. And he loves you more than you could ever imagine. And although you are going through great pain, it does not mean he's left you or forsaken you. He can't do that. It's not in his nature. Finally, our go forward principle. What do we do in great pain? You find the fellowship with Christ. In times of great pain, there is something better than positive thinking, better than good advice, 
Better than a cathartic experience, better than reading a book on what you're going through, and better than endlessly Google searching to find some sort of release. In times of great pain, true hope and healing happen when we allow the pain to move us into fellowship with Christ. Paul writes about this in the book of Philippians. It's in the middle of this big run-on sentence. Thank you, Paul. But I just focused in on this part that I want you to catch with me as we wrap here. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings becoming like him in his death. What he's saying to you and to me is there is a fellowship with Christ available to us in our sufferings. And in that fellowship, we will find everything we need. I'll tell you when it happened to me. I don't know if you know this about me, but I grew up in construction. My, my family trade was sanding and refinishing hardwood floors. And no, I won't help you with your floors, okay? <laughs> and so for the first 22 years of my life, all the work I did was with my hands. And then at about 22 years old, God called me into ministry and I just followed him one step at a time. And it led me into a place where I was stretched so far beyond my leadership capacity. And it hurt. Every single day I went home feeling like I let somebody else down. Every single day the inadequacy I felt was tangible. I wish God would have chose someone else. The anxiety was so bad, every single day I wanted to go hide under a rock. I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but I felt a million miles from home. You know, the hardwood floors don't call you at home when there's a problem in the late evening. It was just my dad and I doing the work together. So I didn't learn office dynamics and, and how to relate to a team and structure and leadership at that capacity. And I genuinely felt to the core of my being, God had picked the wrong guy. And so I went to a favorite place outside to pray. I went somewhere outside because I needed to yell and I truly think I went out there to offer God my resignation. And I remember out there just thinking about it and feeling the feelings and being in pain, like real pain. And outside with God, I yelled. I can't do this. You should have picked someone else. My dad was a carpenter. Don't you see how much better it would have been if you had somebody with an upbringing who was used to this sort of thing? We could be doing so much more in your name. And Jesus spoke three words to me that changed everything. 
And it wasn't, you got this. Hang in there. Or you're the man. I said, my dad was a carpenter. And he said, so was mine. And in an instant, I realized my savior had been there too. The pain I was feeling, he had felt. My savior knows what it's like to go from a simple blue collar life into the pressure of ministry. And it was in that fellowship with Christ through my pain that I found everything I need. In that pain and that fellowship through the pain, I found, I found hope. Through those simple words, so was mine. I found a connection with Christ I had never experienced before. And that connection gave me the strength I was looking for. And in that fellowship, the pain that was controlling me began to transform me into the image of Jesus, which is what this whole life is about anyways. So Northside, I don't know what you're going through. And I don't know how bad it hurts. But I know we've got a savior who does. And that means your pain comes with an invitation. Jesus invites us to fellowship with him in our pain. To bring it to him. To tell him how it really feels. To look at him intently. And to remember He's been there too. And it is in that fellowship, my friends, you will find what you really need. So we're going to practice this together now. We've saved communion for this moment in service. You can go ahead and grab those elements if you have them. But I would remind you to just take a moment and consider what's in your hand right now. This bread, this juice reminds us of the great pain that Jesus went through himself to win us back into the loving arms of our heavenly Father. So what I want to do is invite you in this moment to just move into Jesus. If it's something you're going through, a hurt, a disappointment, maybe it's something going on right now that nobody even knows about you other than you. I want to invite you into this moment to let Jesus have that. So I'm going to step back for a minute. I want to just give you a little space with Jesus. I'll come back and we'll enjoy communion together. I invite you right now to just move in to a time of communion.
I want to invite you to go ahead and grab that bread. Remembering Jesus' body broken for you. Go ahead and take that together now. Go ahead and open the side with that juice. Remembering Jesus' blood that was spilt for you. You have a Savior who has been there too. Let's take that together now. Finally, if you're able, I'd like to invite you to stand up and I wanna pray for you. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our hope. You're our healer, our redeemer, and friend. God, for those experiencing pain this holiday season, I pray that they would go colliding into your love and find everything they've been looking for. Jesus, in your name is power. May we experience that power in our lives, not just here, but this week as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen.